Belinda Giblin recently celebrated 50 years as an actor. Growing up in Tamworth, the daughter of parents who were prolific practitioners in community theatre, early exposure to the arts guaranteed her chosen vocation. Extensive ballet study through her childhood resulted in an offer of scholarship to the Australian Ballet School. But it was a life upon the stage in another artistic expression that won. She has navigated a career that has allowed her a broad repertoire of performances. On television, she found roles in the police dramas Division 4, Homicide and Matlock Police. She has also perfected the art of the soap opera in programs like The Box, The Sullivans and Sons and Daughters, where she gave us the villainous Alison Carr. Giblin continues, dips into the genre with her present residency in Home and Away's Summer Bay as Martha Stewart. Her range can also be seen in stage performances that have covered comedic farce, American drama and the classics. Giblin defines the last decade as probably the most exciting she's experienced as an actor, with acclaimed turns in Blonde Poison, Doubt, The Turquoise Elephant, Family Values and John. Belinda Giblin is this week's guest on Stages, reflecting on an art form that is always surprising, sometimes disappointing, frequently erratic but never dull. Why am I not seeing a little... Rec- oh, it's up the top there, that's right. So... You put the glasses on, <laughs> I have to wear my it's, it's got like that, hasn't it? You sort of... I can, I can look at you like that. I can actually see you. Right. They're not on camera, so that's good. What a rigmarole getting into this. I know, but I'm so technically idiotic that... I, I've worked out all sorts of things during COVID that I've I've kind of learned to deal with um, technical things that are the greatest fear in my life and and the greatest frustration that I ever feel I realise at the very top of the list is IT and and coming to terms with it and then I do and then something goes wrong and I don't know what it means or how to fix it or any of that stuff. Well, if there's any positives to come out of this pandemic, I think that uh, some of it has been forcing us to learn new skills. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Well, yes, I've done a couple of of videos on drama, you know, performance videos on Facebook and for Griffin they asked me to do a... Yes, you've embraced that. I saw you do a monologue from Family Values uh, the other day. Yes, with Silly uh, to my cat who was licking its balls. Yes. um, Which I thought was highly appropriate and I would have probably licked my balls if someone had been talking at me like that. No, it was was a beautiful punchline to a a beautiful speech. Yes. (laughs) Um, I have to start off by saying congratulations, 50 years in the industry. Oh, you saw that little post I put up, yeah, did you? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's indeed. I had a very big birthday, uh, and in fact, while I was doing family values, so that was fortunate because I didn't want to celebrate. I didn't want to have a big party or a big announcement or anything like that. So we just did the play that night, and I received a couple of bouquets of flowers and uh, a cake. And it was the best way to celebrate a birthday is to be on stage. Beautiful that in, in your 50th year, you're still on stage also and, and doing more, great work. More. Yeah, it's been uh, the last decade actually has been my best. I think my most interesting and most diverse, which is why it's been the best, because I've been offered 
wonderful roles that are um, kind of transformative and they're the roles, transformational, they're the roles that I prefer um, because you can lose yourself in a wig and a, um, a whole different person removed from who you are in reality. I mean, well, you lose your... I I mean, I mean this um this very respectfully you're a very glamorous woman but you're there's no vanity with you you're you're quite prepared to look whatever like whatever the character needs to look like you know and i'm yes, thinking of that that beautiful mother superior role in doubt when you you really oh, yes hard yes well i had no makeup at all in that show and that's a that's quite a big ask for someone like me who's been proudly slapping on kabuki-like, geisha-like makeup all my life. Um, so to do that was quite daring, but it's also utterly liberating to, to be able to invest in someone entirely different. I mean, you use a lot of your what's happening inside yourself, but the joy for me is the transformation, to be perfectly honest. To become somebody else with an accent, with a wig, with a different gait, um, with a different uh, set of mannerisms. There's something really joyful in that for me. And that's something that's really happened. The opportunity to do that, I mean, has been only in the last 10 years. Thank God. Got it. And, and because of it, I think it's opened up a whole lot of new possibilities in terms of casting for me. Yeah, so. a, a lot of uh, a lot of women, as they mature, decry the 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 fact that there are fewer and fewer roles for them. But you really hit a jackpot with a succession of roles, which uh, have all proved to be pretty fabulous. Yes, and very very different. Um, yeah, I think I was going to say that's the luck of the draw, and it is to some extent. But I think. I've been working towards it. I think there's a certain self-determination in me that works toward, I have really worked toward that happening for myself. And it started with my, because I'd done glamorous roles and corporate women and television and all those sorts of roles, glamorous roles, if you like, that were ultimately not very challenging and, and ultimately probably reasonably boring. So I decided to produce my own play, which was Love Child, which I did with my daughter, Romy, when she left NIDA because no one would offer me that role, a, a mother of a, of a 30-year-old or whatever she was, 23-year-old. No one would have thought to offer me that role, so I decided to cast myself, produce it, and Jennifer Hagen directed it and she said, I'd never have thought of you in this role. But, but of course, then I did it. And then after that, she liked working with me and realised that I wasn't just, you know, a tits and arse or whatever you want to call it. But uh, She cast me in Shoehorn Sonata with Maggie Kirkpatrick playing a very stitched up little English librarian. Now, she wouldn't have done that. No one would have cast me in that role had I not done um, Love Child. Um, Love Child. <laughs> Galloping dementia now, of course, <laughs> except I can remember 90 minutes of a monologue on stage without any trouble at all. It must be a different part of the brain. 
Do you think that casting people and producers in Australia are fairly limited in the way that they view actors? And, you know, you just cited that somebody would never have considered you for a particular role. Do they need to be more adventurous in their thinking? Uh, yes, I think they do. But I don't think it's entirely their problem. I think actors, actresses particularly, need to, uh, well, like I was saying, I mean, I determined to change the way people looked at me by setting something up where they would look at me differently. And that began actually a series of roles that no one would in a million years have cast me in up until that point. So I think there is a certain onus on the actor to make those opportunities happen, either to talk to directors about it or to, to audition in a different way or... Um, you know, I mean, it's it's all very well to say, you know, I wish actors would, uh, wish, wish directors would be versatile. But, you know, if a director's there and they can see an actor they've worked with before or an actor that looks the role immediately, they're not going to go looking for someone who might be able to do the role who, who they don't immediately see in that part. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think, yeah. I think the audition set up is appalling. I, I'm bad at auditions. I loathe them. Um, and no director would ever see a person's full uh, ability in an audition. No way. No. I think no. I, I just... Meryl Streep says that as well. They don't know anything of the depth or the, or the richness of what you have in an audition. Yeah. So... I think it is limiting and I think directors do wear blinkers and directors use the same actors over and over and over again. Of course, they're used and to I suppose working. because they've developed, yeah, they've developed a shorthand with them and an, an understanding and, and know what they're going to get. Yeah, and, and of course, that also is something I experience. Uh, now, <laughs> I, think, I think we have to also have our part of changing the way people think about us. I mean, I'm doing Home and Away now, playing a, a vastly different role to Doubt or the play John that I did or uh, Turquoise Elephant that I did at Griffin. None of those bear any resemblance at all to the part of Martha that I play in Home and Away. Um, but, you know, television is, has to be, by its nature, very close to how you actually look. You're playing um, Alf Stewart's wife, aren't you? I'm playing Martha, Alf Stewart's wife. Have a cup of tea, darling. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's, it's great fun. It's great well, Ray, fun. Ray Mars created that iconic character that's that's been in the soap for about 30 years, I think. So oh, yes. Martha, don't, Martha's don't. position's pretty guaranteed, you would hope. <laughs> yes. I said to them, will I be coming back after COVID? I said, you're married, Alf, for God's sake. You have to. Well, unless they kill you off through COVID or something. Well, no, they haven't, as no. it's turned out. But but one thing that I am I really appreciate and I I love is that while I'm doing home and away, I go in and I do a certain amount of time, a block, if you like, of a couple of months, sometimes twelve weeks. They let me off if I have a play to do, or I'm offered a play, I get that time and they say that's fine. Give us warning, though, and they write me out. 
And then when I've finished the play, they say, when are you back? And then they write me back in. So it's it's not a bad place really to be in, I guess. You talked about your uh, wonderful daughter, Romy, who is quite a terrific actress in her own right as well. Have Other than Love Child, have you had other opportunities to work together? No, not really. I've suggested a couple of things. She's quite a tough cookie, my daughter. She's quite, <laughs> she's, as you know, uh, she's quite self-determining herself, um, as is her own daughter. I think it runs in the family. So I showed her a play that the woman who wrote Blonde Poison, uh, a play I did at the Opera House and at uh, the Old Fitz, a one-woman show about a German Jew. Gail Lowe wrote that play. She's a, a Jew, but, but she lives in England. And she keeps sending me plays of hers. And one of those plays was Marlena Dietrich, uh, a two-hander with her daughter in her sort of oh, dotage. And uh, she thought I'd be wonderful. She thought it was wonderful, and I'd, I'd, you should do this play, and you should do it with your daughter, and um, and it's this, you know, daughter. And Marlena Dietrich had her daughter had a very rough time with her because she was such a powerhouse, even toward the end of her life. Anyway, Romy read it, and I think she had sort of. Um, she wasn't sure that it was for Australian audiences. She didn't know how interesting it would be, what relevance it might have now in in this sort of age of diversity and... It would be a fairly I, nostalgic I think, piece, I guess. Yes, it would be very much a, a, for a certain audience, Yeah, I yeah. think. Uh, what did you think of your daughter going into the industry that, that you had been navigating for a while, becoming an actor? Oh, I was delighted, absolutely oh, delighted. Oh, God. You didn't, try no, and, I, you didn't try and warn her off? or Absolutely not. I mean, this is a joyous business. It's a piece of rubbish as well. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough life. You're out of work a lot of the time. Um, you have to be very resilient. You have to be uh, have a very strong hide to put up with kind of, and this goes for people who are famous and work a lot. You have to be able to put up with rejection. It becomes personal. You think that no one likes you or thinks you're very good anymore and you go through all sorts of trauma really about it. But, you know, when, when it's good, it's fantastic. But it's not a matter of she needed to do this. Romy didn't want just want to be an actor. She needed to be it because from the time she was small, she, she was living with two people. My husband is a set designer in, in film. I was acting when she was a baby. She was coming on set with me and she was coming on tour with me. And then my son and she came on tour with me. So it wasn't, it was fairly inevitable that something would rub off. But even as a, in primary school, Romy was, was dancing, dan doing, um, creating dance pieces and doing them at assembly. And <laughs> um, they indulged her surprisingly, but she was, um, as, as a young child, she was just right in there. So she went to university, by the way. She went to New South Wales University when she left school. 
and started an arts course. And then she came home one day and she was in second year uh, of an arts degree. And she said, um, by the way, I auditioned for NIDA today. <laughs> she didn't tell me. Well, no, she said, yes, I'm auditioning today. And I went, what? What? Do you, do you need any help? What, what are you doing? What? She said, Mum, I'm all right. I've decided what I'm doing. I'm doing it. I've decided. I was delighted, of course, that she that she got in. You know, it's tough. She's like most actors of her generation. She's teaching drama, as you well know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, thank goodness she's doing that and not working in a, a call centre or a nightclub till four in the morning. Actually, that wouldn't be so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd quite like that. Uh, no, she's using her talents at least. She's not, um, I'm not suggesting in a call centre you're not using your talents, but she's she's doing something she loves. Uh, she'd, she'd like to be on stage or on television, but she does get an opportunity to do that now and again. But she also is a mother of two children and that's a, a full-time job too. So... I'm a, I'm, I admire my daughter hugely because she is so resourceful and she has so many fingers and so many pies, but she copes with it. And uh, she impresses me. So I'm proud of her. I think it's fair to say that, that um, showbiz is probably in her DNA with her parents. But I suspect also back a generation as well, because your parents were both involved in community theatre in Tamworth, weren't they? Oh, you knew about that. Uh, <laughs> my father was a, a gynaecologist and obstetrician. Um, he was a family doctor for years and then he specialised. So he was quite a big man in Tamworth. People certainly knew him and, and he was much loved and he delivered most of the town, I think. Um, but he was That's also a an... responsibility, isn't it? Hugely. But he was, <laughs> my, my father is my hero, a great, great, wonderful man. But he also had a sublime singing voice. Uh, so in Tamworth, which was in those days, in the, in the 50s and 60s growing up, was a huge centre for the arts because we had a conservatorium of music, we had the Sydney Symph come, we had J.C. Williamson come, we had Shakespeare in Jeans come, we had Music of Viva come through, J.C. Williamson, all the big touring companies came through Tamworth. So I grew up with a really rich diet and the ballets, a rich diet of theatre and music. Um, my father sang in every Gilbert and Sullivan uh, production in town for as long as I remembered until he was quite old and then he spray his hair black when he was quite grey. <laughs> it was frightening, actually. Did you <laughs> have to wash, wash the pillowcases? Yes. Well, it rubbed off on his costume, which was... Or, or I remember one night he went on stage and I was home from uni or maybe I was an actor by then. But I went home and there was Dad singing. He, he was he had a beautiful tenor voice. He was taught by the same woman who taught Joan Sutherland, Emily Dickens. And he had a, a really I mean, I'm I'm not just boasting because he's my father, but he had a he made records, so he, he had a beautiful voice. But he was a terrible ham, an unbelievable ham of an actor. 
Um, he used to do that sort of skip onto stage, you know, that the old school actors sometimes did as they <laughs> entered and exited. <laughs> but one night I went home and he was doing something and he sprayed his hair black, but he had it all down his ear. All this black spray paint down his ear as well, which he, he missed his hair at that point. But he sang. He sang beautifully. We all, my mother was an actor in all the um, theatres, in all the theatre, amateur theatre. Um, but they'd enter all the drama festivals and my mother would win Best Actress and or she was directing. Or, so we grew up very much with that. And the Steadfords were very big in Tamworth. And we would enter the Shakespeare um, section of the Steadford every year, all of the family. I had two brothers and a sister and all of and my mother and my father and we would all enter the Shakespeare solo section. There'd be all these giblins <laughs> and then the Shakespeare duo and the Shakespeare duo was a combination of my brother and my brother together or my brother and my mother, my brother and my father, my other brother and my mother and father, my father and me, my mother and me, my mother and my father. <laughs> the various we combinations. Various combinations. And there would have been, it was the biggest event of the Steadford and there would be like 50 entrances. And given that we had such a sort of group booking in it, <laughs> we... Um, but I, I, we did so much Shakespeare back then. We didn't have television. Did um, you win every year? We won every year, and it was uh, not difficult, given that we were about fourteen entries in the out of fifty. We generally took home the prize, one of us or two of us or whatever. And given that we donated the prize, <laughs> it was hardly, <laughs> hardly a win. It was a wonderful wonderful life growing up because my parents loved the theatre and loved music. Um, we we didn't have television. We had, it sounds like a little house on the prairie or something, but we had... Um, a crystal my father set. would Yeah, we had crystal sets. <laughs> we did have radio. We did have radios. My brother had a crystal set. But my we would listen to opera, but we'd actually listen to it. You know, it wasn't background. We'd sit around the fire active and listening. My, active, lis, actively listening mm. to the opera. But more than that, my father had the music score. So we would read the score as we listened. Well, one of us, uh, me mainly, because I played piano and so I could read music. So I would read the score. So I listened to all, I grew up with all the operas, all the GNS, and I can t sing every single line of every single Gilbert and Solomon. Were you performing in the GNS and and, no, and the local I don't I don't have a great singing voice. I'm I'm right. basso if I'm anything. <laughs> no, I'm I'm the greatest tragedy of my life is I don't I'm not a singer. Well, it's an extraordinary I'm, I'm, I'm exposure to the arts during your childhood. Um, and and the other discipline which we're about to tick off is uh, ballet. You were quite an avid uh, ballet oh. student. Yes, I ballet was my huge love. I started when I was seven. We had a, a chap who was in the Borobansky Ballet. He, he was from Latvia originally. Um, he was very, Bruno Harvey his name was, um, originally Bruno Brunowski. But he became Bruno Harvey when he came to Australia and he was with the Borobansky 
and he 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 had an accident while he was touring through Tamworth, and my father looked after him. Um, his knees or something, he fell or something, I can't remember. And when the Borobansky Ballet finally went back to Sydney, he came up to Tamworth and became a teacher. So I had him teach me um, and he was magnificent. So I, I did ballet up until I left school and got a scholarship to the Australian Ballet School and decided I wanted to go to university and meet boys instead. So the, the hunger or the passion for the dance was not that great? It wasn't by that right? stage. Right. But by the time I left school, I knew it was, you know, I had these discussions with my parents. It was going to be a limited profession that you've kind of end your ballet career around 30 and that that was the general consensus and that if I was going to do anything, I should be an actor. I was already in every, you know, it was part of my makeup, I suppose. But that's a big consideration, um, knowing that a, a dance career will be over at 30 and then what are you going to do? Well, that's what people used to, well, yes, that's what people used to say. My mother used to say, but, you know, if you were an actor, um, you could, you, you, you know, you for the next 50 years. Yeah, you the next 50 years. I think I'd... I think I'd grown tired of it. It's a very specific discipline and I think I wanted a bit more than that. But not only that, I was a highly academic child and part of me also wanted to go to university and get a degree. So the plan was that I'd go to Sydney Uni and get a degree, an arts degree, and then go to and audition for NIDA at least, um, which is exactly what I did. Was um, was Nida the place for you? Uh, as it turned out, not really. <laughs> um, I'd had three years at Sydney Uni and um, I'd so three years of an institution. I'd come from school to university and then I went to Nida. And in those days, everyone who was at Nida came straight from school. So I was... Uh, I, the first thing that they said when I arrived there was, oh, you're the one who went to university. Ah, oh, well, we'll soon knock that out of you. And I remember that because it was a bit like saying you're, you'll probably be a bit cerebral or cerebral and not intuitive. Yeah. And I'll be academic or my approach, would, which is Overthink the text. Yeah. Overthink it or be too intellectual and it was rubbish. But... That was a, a kind of consideration and I was very, very restless at NIDA. Not because I didn't like anybody. I, my best friends, Andrew McFarlane was in my year at NIDA. You just played your husband. Um, they just played my husband, Tina Bursell, Paula Duncan. I mean, it was a, a, a wonderful year, Liz Alexander. A, a great John Jarrett. It was a, it was a year it's of It's a lustrous year. They're all our great uh, TV talents. And and Tina and I and Paula all got kicked out after the first year. Oh really? And yeah, I got I was I was um and I say kicked out. I was restless and it looked like I was restless. I wanted I, I found it I'm very much a um let me up there and make a mistake. 
That's how I learn. If you talk too much about it, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is why I wasn't an academic because it, I, I couldn't talk about it too much because it straightjacketed me. Let me get up and see what happens when I do it is the way I'm, I, I work. So I remember John Clark saying to me, I think, because he was lovely, he was lovely to me. But he said, you know, I think School of Hard Knocks for you, I think trial and error, that's how you're going to, that's how you're going to best learn, not sitting in a, in a uh, acting school. And it may have been because I was at university and I'd, I'd just been institutionalised for too long. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I, I was restless. Well, there's certainly there's plenty of actors who thrive on those, those training institutions and others who certainly learn on the job, don't they? They, they don't require yeah. any of the yeah. training. I did a year. I mean, I did a whole year of, of it, just that I didn't go back. And I went straight into Matlock, uh, Matlock a television series. Oh, um, with Paul Cronin, police drama. Paul Cronin. I did, a, I did an episode of that very soon after I left NIDA and... That was an entree into the Crawford, the Crawford family down in yeah. Melbourne. Hector Explain the, um, the the Crawford, Crawford Productions, that that studio which existed to the listener who may not be aware. What, what well, was Crawford, Crawford Production was run by a man called Hector Crawford, who had the only then monopoly of television shows. He had a whole lot of television shows going at once. It doesn't, a bit like when Grundy, Reg Grundy, had his empire. He had several shows going. doesn't quite happen like that anymore. But um, Hector Crawford, very avuncular, wonderful man, had a, a series of shows, Matlock, Homicide, Division 4, Cop Shop, The Sullivans, Bluey, um, the music showcase thing he also used to do. If you went into one show there and Crawf, um, Matlock was one kind of police country police show, that was my very first television role. And I did it with Penny Hackforth-Jones. I moved, I went into that and made some impression, I suppose, because they asked me before I flew back to Sydney if I'd auditioned for this thing called The Box. Ooh, which was a brand naughty, new, naughty show, naughty, naughty it, television show. set in a, a TV station. Yes, and I'd heard a bit about this. I was in Melbourne. I'd just finished the Matlock. I'd been down on location there for a week. And they said, could you come in before you fly back and just audition for this? And I said, oh. actors are, well, I, I look back on my past career and my choices and think, what a wanker I was. But I did say, <laughs> I did say, oh, no, I hear that's a bit, you know, is that a bit cheap and nasty or something? I can't remember what I said, but it was, I, I was heard it was a bit of a sort of sexy thing. Well, this anyway, was, was a competition to number 96. 96 yes, it was the, time, so the opposition. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And Abigail was being a sex symbol on that show. And... I was the one that they were auditioning to be, apparently the sex symbol for the box at the time. And I did the episode and I <laughs> flew back to Sydney and, of course, then uh, I got the role and then that started me out. Uh, you know, I just went from one show to the next. 
for 12 years with Crawford. They were a bit like um, the MGM Studios, I guess. They had this stable of, of actors that That's they right. would put in all their shows. Yeah. I remember Hector saying to me, do you want to, this is when I finished, um, oh God, I can't remember in the order in which they came, but I'd, I'd done something and he said, do you want to go into Skyways when you finish this? And then I'd finish Skyways and I'd do a year maybe or something and then he'd say, would you like to do a bit of Carson's Law or would you like to, you know, it was a bit like that. But I was craving to do some theatre because I had this highfalutin idea or this pretentious now looking back idea that I wanted to do real theatre. And I remember saying that to Hector and he smiled in his sort of benign, avuncular way. <laughs> he must have thought I was a complete idiot. But anyway, I wanted to do some theatre and so I did. Well what was the casting process uh, like at Crawford's? Did, did you need to audition for these shows or it was really just an invitation and they'd create a role for you? People did audition, but I had done, when I, when I left NIDA, they, came, they used to come up, a sort of the caravan of Crawford's used to come up, caravan in quotes, with all the people. There'd be half a dozen people and they'd come up and they'd be in a hotel or something and then people would come and they were sort of general casting. Bunny Brook, who was a, um, a woman who was around then, an actor and also director, um, auditioned me and they were just general auditions. So we'd go to the hotel and they'd hide a, you know, a seminar room or whatever and there were a panel of people and you just do a, a, a general audition. They'd come from Melbourne to Sydney and I think I just chose a piece and I just did a piece and that's why I was offered the matlock about two days later. But after that, I went straight into the box from the matlock. Then I'd got a bit of a profile by then so I wasn't auditioning at all. The camera just, would need to love you as well, I guess. Well, it might have then. It doesn't love me so much anymore. <laughs> I, I find it incredibly hard to watch myself now on on Home and Away. I mean, it's like, what happened to you? What happened to your face? It's dropped. I, I couldn't care less in theatre how, how old or how dowdy or anything I look, but on television... Because it's so much closer to how I look and am, it's incredibly exposing, incredibly. And, and I'm not sure. I know I'm playing a character, but I can't get past the, the, um, the, the ageing, you know, and, and uh, I, I suppose I've just got to swallow it and just go, well, look, you you are that age. Yeah. Put up with it, but you know it's such a it's such a thankless thing. I mean that's why women have on film have Botox and and neck lifts and facelifts to I the detriment of their career, don't you think? Yes, but I understand why they do it. I certainly yeah, yeah, will course, never do it. I'm I won't do it because uh, I'm I'm too scared. <laughs> Basically. Something going wrong. Hurty, hurty. No, no. I I just something in me says, look, don't try and fool people.
That period at, at Crawford's was, uh, of course, a time without email, without mobile phones, probably without even faxes. How did communication take place between the studio and you and agents? Well, in those days, agents were it was much more user friendly. I I miss those days. You would visit your agent. You weren't on the phone all the time. You'd go in and see your agent. And you'd sit with your agent and you'd talk with your agent and you'd discuss your career with your agent. And they'd work things out with you. And you were it was there was so much more face to face with agents. So much more. Um, no, the early early uh, days of agenting in Australia. Also, I guess they're, they're the first agents which are establishing their careers and business. Yeah, well, we were. Well, yes, because there weren't a lot of agents back then. There weren't a lot of actors. There weren't nearly as many actors, obviously. Uh, so they had time and they could see you and um, and you could have arguments with them, but face to face, and that that. Somehow, I miss hugely. Um, in studio, the director would be up in the control room. They'd be in another part of the building, um, and there'd be someone on the floor. Obviously, the floor manager who'd be relaying information, or the voice of God would come down from the control room, but you never got to see, you saw the director in rehearsal, but you never got to see the director in on the floor. A um, little bit different kind of now. Um, but strangely, not so different. I mean, you go into this huge hangar of a, a building and there are sets, different sets, different rooms all around the wall. Um, yeah, I, I, I miss, because I, I am, of that generation. So I have to keep remembering why I'm missing it so much because I'm I'm very face-to-face and I like seeing people's eyes. I don't, I hardly ever email, I ring people because an email doesn't quite say it. Yes, and all this technology, which is supposed to sort of uh, bring the world closer together and more immediate is often distances, hasn't it? We've lost that, old, the old-fashioned... Um, etiquette of, of, of writing a card or sending a handwritten letter, a note or a, letter. Or a phone call, yeah. How exciting yeah. is it to get a letter nowadays? <laughs> yes. Mind you, I love Skype. I love Zoom. So if I can see your face, yeah. I'm really happy. I, I speak to my son who lives in the States and poor bugger with a, with a moron at the helm not my son. But no, no, don't we talk, talking not, about the, the or, orange fellow. The orange fellow. <laughs> but um, when I Skype my son, of course, I feel like I'm in the room with him. So that's nice. And I have to say, during COVID, I think we've been very creative in, in the creative arts, in the way we've managed to, you know, Zoom things and have these mass Zoom choirs and... I think that's been fun. Um, there are some good things about I do my uh, GST on the computer. <laughs> there, are, there are some good things. <laughs> yeah, a lot of your television work was in soaps. That's a, yes. a particular discipline on its own, isn't it? What, what, do you enjoy playing in soap opera? Look, I enjoy, I enjoy acting, full stop. So, so I, whatever the I challenge choose- is. 
Yeah, yeah. I choose to enjoy being in a soap because if I was, if I got distressed by certain things about it, I wouldn't enjoy going to work. So I, I love it. I love the camaraderie. I love meeting the same people. The, the problem, of course, is, is not the writing, as a lot of people say. It's the nature of what a soap is. Um, and a lot of the writing has to be very repetitive. It's it's a particular kind of animal and the writing goes with that because it's based on sensationalism. It's based on cliffhangers. It's based on we've got to keep the people watching for the next episode. <laughs> so it's a slightly heightened reality and sometimes and Sometimes it's either over the top or it's a bit banal. One of the conventions I love about soap is that a new actor can come in and play a character that we're all familiar with. Now, you did that in Sons and Daughters, didn't you? You, you did. Rowena Wallace went off one day and came back as Belinda Giblin. As me. <laughs> yes, an inch shorter and um, looking marginally different. Um, but that was fun and the interesting thing was the audiences bought it yeah and they went they with, it, with it and they thought it was they go with it yeah absolutely it's a it's a given they were delighted by it and and they thought it was crazy and then what was even crazier was that rowena wallace this was in sons and daughters rowena wallace came back as her own twin sister <laughs> so She'd played the role that I was now playing, but she couldn't come back and play the role I was playing that she used to be, so she came back as her twin sister. And the two of us fought with each other for you about six called months. Pat the Rat, though, were you? I was called Pat the Rat until I changed my name to Alison Carr. <laughs> <laughs> that was such, such fun. But we... we I don't know. We we played very big, over the top. You were Australia's dynasty. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Unrealistic. The clothes we were all looked like front row forwards with our shoulders out here like this, you know, through the ages. And big hair. And big hair. So there was a sort of lovely glamour and exaggeration about it. What was it like losing your anonymity in those years and, and suddenly being recognised on the street? Uh, well, I had a lot of that in, in the box years before, but I'm, I, prefer not, I prefer not being recognised, to be perfectly honest. I, I loved it then. I, it was, it was um, non-intrusive. People are lovely. No one was awful. Um, people would stop me in the street. It was, it was flattering. All good things, and I was polite and kind to people. I, I didn't take advantage of it. Um, and, of course, it helped to have some profile if I did some theatre. So that was good. But I've loved anonymity for about 10 years, but now I'm back on Home and Away. I still have anonymity, believe it or not. Baseball caps and dark glasses? No, no one recognises me when I go down to the local IGA or uh, no, just a few people. They're mostly my age. 
In 2019, you present, were presented with quite an acting challenge in a play called John. And I remember at the time having a really fascinating conversation with you about uh, the rehearsal process and, and creating that character. You were really inspired by that production, weren't you? Oh, it was... Oh, well, it was... The gifts. The gifts were the script. The script was exciting and... Oh, God, what's the word? It was so inspiring and it was thick and rich with detail. Yeah, de a dense, de lovely, dense story um, by Annie Baker. Yes, yes, and Annie Baker is not loved by everybody, but she, because they're such long plays, but the richness of the text, the, the, the detail that she has in that play are the things that I most love about the plays that I do. I like to be able to get my teeth into something. Uh, I love the fact that it was going to be transformative, that I wasn't going to be looking anything like how I look. Um, it, it was going to be a challenge in terms of the physicality of the piece. It was a different accent. I was going to have a wig, which I had to fight the director about. Um, I was going to be working with Craig Baldwin, who is a wonderful, wonderful director. Um, I was working for Outhouse Theatre Company, Jeremy Walters running it, and that was their company that I wanted to work with for ages. So the stars were aligned on this one. And I and Maggie, um, Maggie Blinko, who's a great mate of mine, was going to play the, the uh, other older role. And she was perfectly cast in it. She's in her 80s and she's the most extraordinary woman, even in her 80s, uh, and these two young, wonderful actors. And I've never worked so bloody hard in my life as I did on that play. And the reason was that Craig Baldwin, who, who's been living in America now for years, worked me so hard and would not let me use any of my tricks or take any easy way out. He just worked me and everybody, but we were drilled and drilled and drilled with the detail, the detail of it, the detail of it, the detail. It was fascinating. I worked on that script for a long time before rehearsal started because there was so much I had to know and find out and the detail and the research I had to do. Um, the house, the, the guest house that I was running, this little old lady, and I was running this weird little guest house in the middle of the Civil War battlefields. So I had to know all about the Civil War and there were references to that and I looked at videos and read history books and... That's part of the joy. I hate actors talking about themselves and their craft, and I'll try and I'll try and keep this brief. But the joy is the research. Yeah, I think and you hit the nail on the head. Every new play we do, we learn so much about another period in time or another world. Um, it's mm. great to walk in another person's shoes, to use a colloquial, mm. a proverbial mm. colloquialism. But um, yeah, that that is a joy, isn't it? Researching and and learning. Oh yeah, absolutely, and. Anything, you know, sayings in it. And you, 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 and that's all before rehearsal. That's before you get into rehearsal. 
So, uh, and then I, I have to say these days I try and learn, especially if I have an accent, I then start working on the accent and then I had to start working on the lines and I learned a lot of the lines before I got there because I'd talked to the director beforehand uh, and I knew I had to get a lot of it under my belt before I got to rehearsal. Is that your dog or your cat? <laughs> <laughs> You're letting the Sorry, dog out the door. You're gonna to have to cut that out. <laughs> yes. Oh no, no, I'll leave it in. That's fantastic. This is oh, this is live yeah. podcasting. All right. Well, the dog wants to go out now. The cat will be out any minute now. Oh. And uh, and I'm not going to I'm not going to look at them because she wants she'll bring me a ball and I'll have to throw it. Oh no no. Um, she wasn't licking her balls then, was she? That cat? <laughs> no, no. She's a. Girl. It's another cat. <laughs> That's my male cat. Right, no, but yes, the, the the fun of it and then working with those lovely actors and then the, the risk of performing that play, not knowing what the audiences was, audience was going to think of it. We had wonderful audiences and it was a success, thank God. Won the, won the Best Play Award. So. Yeah, at Independent Theatre. Um, and look, I, I must say a lot of, you know, that you identified the last 10 years as some of your most exciting theatre. And a lot of it is, well, all of it, I think, has taken place on independent theatre stages, not the main stages. But independent theatre seems to be where the most exciting work has been created. Yeah. I'm always a bit careful about this, although I would totally agree <laughs> with that. I, I, I'm, I do. I think the most, because I go to the theatre a lot and I see a lot of stuff, I would say last year, the year before last two, maybe the last few years, 70% of the best stuff I've seen has been in independent theatre. The most interesting, um, the most diverse casting, sometimes risky casting. Um, we tend to see a lot of the same faces in, in subsidised, uh, in, you know, main stage theatre, but that, that doesn't mean it's not good. It's just you get very used to seeing the same faces. But, you know, I've worked, I've worked for Griffin in the last 10 years now, twice, and they're not independent. But there's something exciting about two tables and a chair and no money. Absolutely. Yep. You know, and, and that's, that's it. That's all it is, really, for me. I just go, we're not, we, don't have a, we don't have a board of people. We, we're not going to be having, uh, you know, the, the administrative staff come in and discuss things. And sometimes there's too much money and too many cooks. Yeah. And, and in independent theatre, <laughs> there are very few people there, you know, and it's just a, a bare floor and a bunch of actors. And it's, it's something, there's something nice about that to me. Do you read reviews? Oh, yes. Yeah. I'd be lying if I if I said I didn't read reviews. Um, the the joy about getting old and reviews is that if you get a bad review, as it is with a good review, you can't remember it the next day. <laughs> I, and I really, you know, when I was younger, if someone said even something vaguely bad about me, or you know, and mainly praised me, but then said something that was negative. I would stew over that for weeks and weeks and weeks. It, and a bad review would destroy you. 
I mean, really, really destroy you and hugely personal. Now I, well, I, I'm getting pretty nice reviews. <laughs> um, that's one good thing, but you know, I do forget them. I do, I do not stew over things like I used to. It is tomorrow's fish and chip paper after all, you know, metaphorically speaking. As someone once famously said. Yes, when people read newspapers. What about superstition? Um, do you have an opening night ritual, uh, a procedure that you go through when you arrive at the theatre? Uh, no. <laughs> not really. Um, I'm not superstitious. I'm not religious. I'm not any of those things. I go to the theatre and I do a vocal warm-up for a long time. You know, I do quite a big vocal warm-up. But I remember being in a theatre with superstitious people and being sent out of the room when I said Macbeth or whistled or anything. I had to go outside. June Salter once sent me outside when I said, what did I do? I whistled in the dressing room, <laughs> which I was sharing with her. At Phillips Street Theatre, this is going way back, and Romy was 10 months old, my daughter, who is now in her 30s, and she said, go outside and don't you come back in for 10 minutes. I was in the middle of putting my bloody makeup on. <laughs> anyway, I had to go out and it was in the middle of winter and it was freezing cold. <laughs> and I'm outside the stage door, freezing. 10 minutes. I listened to her and then I went back in and she said, never whistle in this dressing room again. Don't upset June. Don't upset June, no. But With all your success at uh, the, with Shakespeare at the Estedfords, have you done much Shakespeare in your career? <laughs> no. Really? No, and it's ridiculous. There are two things I would love to do. Um, I mean, I love Shakespeare and I love the music of Shakespeare and I'm, I don't think I'm bad at it. It's just that this is the thing about determining your career. Because I've never done any on Sydney stages, I continue not to do any. Yeah. If I did some Shakespeare, I might continue to do some more, and that's kind of how it works. It's making that break into it. Two things I would love to do are Shakespeare and restoration comedy. Yeah, yeah. The trip, don't you find the trouble, you know, you think you hear of a restoration comedy being done and, and you, you, you go along to it and it's being done in business suits and set in, you know, no, 2000... you can't do... oh, no, no. You, you can't do that. You've got no, to do it with, with high heels and, and canes and handkerchiefs. I, I, I don't know why people, restoration comedy is already, by its very nature, it is already um, very camp, you know, um, and that's the, that's the humour of it. Like, I would put it this way. I'd like to do a restoration comedy in the old style, in the real restoration style. Well, there yes. you go. Look, I, 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 well, good. It's out there in the, uh, in the universe <laughs> now. So now. I think in the next 10 years, we want to see a, a Shakespeare or a restoration or both for Miss Gibbon. <laughs> uh, now, you're back at home in a way, haven't you? They've just um, resumed filming after a bit of a break. Yeah, yeah, well, they went back on Monday and I'm going back in three weeks' time. I'm on air at the moment, actually. I noticed last night uh, that I was on and I went, oh, goodness, that's me. So that's back on air now, but they're also back 
on on location uh, as of last Monday. Do you um, oh. do you tune in and, and check your work, or you think that's my job? I've done there. I've filmed it, and now I'll, I'll just get on. I'll I'll watch the seven thirty report instead. <laughs> no, the seven o'clock news. Seven yes, news, right. I watch. I watch a lot of news programs because I'm a bit of a newsaholic. Uh, but I record it. Um, if I know I'm kind of coming on soon, I record it, and then I might watch a couple of episodes. Um, I don't. I don't watch it at seven o'clock. No, but just as, um, but just as a quality check, don't you? Absolutely, and and there's there's nothing wrong with that. I think I think I need to look at what I'm doing wrong <laughs> because I tell you, with television, I as with most things, but television particularly, it's such an ongoing um, learning experience. I must stop doing that. I must not do that with my head why am i doing that with my head things like that little things because when you do a lot of theater and you go back to television you forget that you don't need to do so much <laughs> so there are, are little things that i adapt to but mostly i look at the lines on my face and my wrinkly neck and go oh for god's sake that's terrible. I need a, I need Botox. No, no, I, I do, I watch it and I check my performance and it, and it does honestly inform what I do next performance-wise. Which hopefully will be Shakespeare or Restoration. No, I mean what I do next on camera. Oh, well, next on camera, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I learn from my mistakes and, and can... <laughs> 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 Belinda, it's been an absolute treat chatting with you. Uh, thank you for um, your time and your, your wisdom and um, the anecdotes you've shared. It's been fantastic. <laughs> My pleasure. I'm, um, I'm sorry I talk constantly. And someone once said, I don't have to ask any questions because you just never stop talking. No, it's brilliant. Um, I had about eight pages of questions here, but um, I just went with it. I just riffed with you and... Um, oh, gosh. Well, I'd, maybe there are things you haven't asked me that were most more important. No, not at all. Well, look, we'll, we'll come back um, uh, in five years, hey? And, um, and, see, where, <laughs> and see where you're at. <laughs> okay. See ya. Okay, see ya. And there you go. I hope you enjoyed that one. My conversation with the delightful Belinda Giblin. Always insightful and much fun. We've been meaning to record that episode for some time now. Finally, the diaries were clear. I wonder why. <laughs> Thanks for making us a part of your podcast listening. A new episode of The Stages podcast is released every Thursday. I know that many of you have been recommending the podcast to colleagues and friends, and I appreciate that very much. Until next time, I'm Peter Eyers, and you've been listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives. Keep warm, keep well, and I'll catch you next time.